came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 7th of November 2019. And we're going to start each episode with a community service announcement and a reminder that, yes, Virginia, we have a climate crisis on our hands. See what you can do to help. Each fortnight, we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. I know you're going to love today's interview with Amanda Werrett from the Australian National University. And Amanda works high up on the Warrumbungle Ranges at the Siding Spring Observatory site. She tells us all about this dark sky site, the huge array of telescopes, the amazing instruments, and the researchers who work there. And the observing tip she gives us towards the end of her interview will change the way you look up at the sky forever. Amazing. And then we'll welcome Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave for our regular observational and astrophotography session, What's Up Doc? And we'll finish up as usual with our Astrophys News Highlights from this golden age of astronomy, space science and particle physics. So right now, let's zoom up 3,800 feet to speak with Amanda at the Siding Spring Observatory Complex in the Warrumbungle Ranges, in remote New South Wales in Australia. Hello, Amanda. Hello, Brendan. How are you? Very well, thank you. Now, following a fabulous visit to the Warrumbungle Ranges to interview Nobel laureate Dr Chris Lidman last year, I was also lucky enough to meet Amanda Werrett, and so I did some follow-up, and today we're very fortunate to be speaking with Amanda, who works for the Australian National University and conducts wonderful tours of the Siding Spring Observatory. My family loved the way you took us through some of the observatories there, Amanda, and your knowledge and passion for this special place is sensational. And you obviously have far too much fun. I really do, actually, Brendan. And some days I pinch myself. Heading to work atop a mountain has its extraordinary days. Fantastic. So before we talk about all the amazing instruments and the research and the work that you do on the mountain, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Amanda? I grew up beside the beach under the bright city lights of Newcastle. That was my home, the industrial city, and very much loved Newcastle by the beach. 
Fantastic. So tell us a little about your school days and your early ambitions and did those ambitions change? I was largely not very ambitious at all at school. I think I was just having such a great time. Probably too much fun. (laughs) But during my high school certificate, I fell in love with photography. I was at a school, luckily, there's a teacher there who was into what was then darkroom photography. This is long before digital. And I just got so taken with the whole chemistry of photography and the darkroom and developing my own 35mm film and printing my own photographs in the darkroom. It was like magic to me. You know, seeing the image appear in the developer bath and it was a picture that I took. So it really got in deep and I I knew I wanted to be a photographer, especially a, a black and white portrait photographer. Fantastic. And now you're working where some of the most amazing photography in the world takes place. So after your successful school career, you completed your associate diploma in fine art and then a bachelor degree in art and also both majored in photography. And now you work at Siding Spring for the Australian National University and you spend a lot of time introducing people to all the science, the astronomy and technology that is up on Mount Wurrut, otherwise known as the Siding Spring Observatory. And the dark skies there are both beautiful and inspiring. And I hope you're still producing your art and photography as well. Oh, I am actually, Brendan. I think it's a great balance for all the heady astroscience up here as well. (laughs) (laughs) Very good now. Before you tell us about the range of telescopes and instruments that live up on your mountain workplace, in the traditional lands of the Gamilaroi, the Wiradjuri and the Walwan people, can you tell us about the area in general, its dark sky park status and some of the history of Siding Spring Observatory? Well, you're right. This is one of the darkest places in Australia and actually in the world. And the Warrumbungle National Park, which surrounds the mountaintop of Siding Spring Observatory, a few years ago won an international award from the International Dark Sky Association for Dark Sky Park. And this is the first within Australia to be awarded so, and a gold tier status as well. I mean, they say the night sky above the Warrumbungle National Park is as pristinely dark as perhaps it always ever has been. Now that's saying something. So I suppose, you know, way back in the 50s, the 1950s, Mount Stromlo, which was amalgamated into a department of astronomy in the Australian National University, the astronomers working at Mount Stromlo were a little bit frustrated, you might say, of even from, from then in the, in the mid-50s, the light pollution coming from Canberra. So they were looking for a new dark sky site. Yep. And, and to nutshell the story, they found Mount Wurrut, which is, you know, at the foothills of the Warren Bungles, and they established Siding Spring here, or a big 40-inch self-contained observatory here, in 1963, with the idea that this area wouldn't be overly developed out of its darkness, you know, wouldn't be um, overly developed with light pollution. And, well, they were spot on, weren't they? So <laughs> it being a dark sky park. Now, so Siding Spring was established then in 1963 and look, over 50 years later, there's 
18 observatories, 72 working professional optical telescopes. And this is, the Siding Springs site is premier astronomical research facility in Australia. Fantastic. Now, before we talk about the instruments there, you've given us a hint. You've probably got one of the best jobs in the world, and I'm quite envious of your work and your workplace. Can you tell us a bit about your working week and some of the special events that happen on your mountain? You might even want to mention the annual Starfest that's just finished. So Starfest is fantastic for the general public. It incorporates our open day. It's on the October long weekend of every year on the Saturday. And it's when we open our doors to the public and invite everybody in open telescopes. Um, Astronomers who use this world-class equipment are here to talk about it and just talk face-to-face with people. And usually people are very excited to come and do that. So that would be, yes, part of my day-to-day can be very dynamic. I could be in amongst 1,200 people walking around on our open day during Starfest or sitting in my office on top of a mountain, you know, wedge-tailed eagles circling around answering questions like people ring up and say things like, so what did I see in the sky last night? And I have to try and answer that and say, oh, can you carry that down to a direction perhaps? So it's a very dynamic working week up here. I mean, I could be hosting a group of city kids from, from a school in Sydney that had never been more than 60 kilometres, you know, away from their school coming out to see a mountain landscape for the first time or the stars for the first time out from the city lights um, or assisting TV producers like when the BBC came with the Stargazing Live program and we were on live television with Brian and Julia, you know, all in a day's work. So it's very dynamic up here in my position as as tour officer and assistant to the site manager for the site. So it's never a dull moment. Fantastic. Thanks for that. Now, let's move on to those instruments. There's the idea that despite the singular name Siding Spring Observatory, you have lots of observatories there and all of these research telescopes and $100 million worth of instruments at Siding Spring. Can you describe for our listeners the range of instruments who operates them either on-site or remotely, and what's the latest instrument that's been installed up there? Okay, so Siding Spring Observatory is, is a singular name for a astronomical scientific community. So Siding Spring is well positioned on the Earth and in Australia to be part of the southern trifecta, we call it. So if you have telescopes at Siding Spring, Cape Town, South Africa, and in Chile, um, then you've got the whole Southern Hemisphere covered to be continually looking at the night sky. So 24-7 observation. And there are observatories up here who make the most of that. Like, for example, one of our observatories up here is the South Korean Microlensing Telescope. And they have a telescope in one of each country in the southern hemisphere of Australia, South Africa, and South America. So you're covering the night sky 24-7 continual observation way. And it's really important for especially microlensing events. 
you can't sort of miss a moment of an opportunity. So telescopes like that, we have six different countries represented up here at Siding Spring, South Korea, USA, Japan, Hungary, Poland, the UK, and of course, Australian telescopes as well. And the beauty of putting a telescope here at Siding Spring is that if you are in the Northern Hemisphere, you could be using your telescopes in your daytime and our nighttime's astronomy becoming a day job <laughs> in, in a sense. There's a range of instruments here, range of sizes of optical telescopes. Attached to those might be instruments like polarizing equipment, microlensing equipment, spectrographs, astroimaging, almost anything you can, you can imagine. And probably the latest instrument to be put in place is a little observatory on top of the hill called the Huntsman Project for the Macquarie University. Yep. And it's called Huntsman, not because of all the little critters that crawl in at night, although there are <laughs> some other visitors. <laughs> called Huntsman because there's an arrangement of eight 400 millimeter Canon lenses attached to the side of Schmidt-Cassegrain telescope. So it looks a bit like a spider, I suppose, in that it has eight eyes looking at the one object. And so um, the, the Huntsman project is uh, new and it's well underway. It, when I was talking to the astronomers who were coming to install instruments in Huntsman and, and get the dome operating remotely, they were talking to me about the point of difference of Huntsman was Huntsman is using equipment that you can literally purchase off the shelf. You can go to a binoculars and telescope shop and update your equipment off the shelf, the top shelf, mind you. Yep. But the beauty of that is that you can quite easily make repairs and everything is understood in a sense like other telescopes up here are actually custom built and engineered as a one-off. And so when, when you have troubles with things, you have to engineer your way out of it. And so that was my impression from the astronomers using Huntsman that that was a, a plus because you have to maintain these instruments and they're operating remotely and there's, it's very complicated. So that was a pro in, in the design of Huntsman is that it was very easy to maintain in that way. Very good. Now, let's go on to one of those custom-built instruments. It truly is an awesome observatory complex. Now, we know astronomers love big numbers and you have a 3.9-metre telescope there which has some amazing instruments strapped to it. I was blown away when I was taken inside that dome. Can you tell us about this telescope and what research it's been used for? It is quite a telescope. When I take people into the dome of the AAT, I prepare them. We're having a look at a very big telescope, but even still when we go inside, they go, wow, it really is a massive instrument, four storeys high. So the 3.9-metre optical telescope we know as the Anglo-Australian Telescope has an incredible instrument was designed for it called 2DF. And 2DF is the, the bread and butter instrument of the AAT observing schedule. It's especially for observers wanting to look at targets for spectroscopy. So 2DF is essentially a, a pick-and-place robot that can configure 392 fibre optic buttons in a field of two degrees. 
which is quite a telescopic view on the night sky. It's not wide angle by any means. Yep. So the beauty of that is that prior to 2DF, you were probably observing one object for however long, uh, an hour or so, and then another one object. So 2DF came along and just revolutionized this data collection in a big way. So in the course of an evening, you could survey thousands of objects with 2DF. So 2DF has an incredible accuracy. The telescope itself can actually point to within one arc second, which is incredibly accurate, which is, you know, a couple of microns or a hundredth of a millimetre of accuracy. And the robot positioner that configures these fibre optic buttons to receive, you know, distant galactic light can actually position to within an accuracy of, of 10 microns. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's quite incredible. So, yeah, 2DF would have to be the most celebrated instrument attached to the Anglo-Australian Telescope. Fantastic, and it's an awe-inspiring place. Now, what about that famous sky mapper that helped earn Nobel Prizes and measured the accelerating expansion of the universe. What is SkyMapper? Well, SkyMapper is a neat 1.35 metre wide-angle modified Cassegrain telescope. And it has a CCD capability of 268 million pixels. Uh, And it can photograph a five to five or six square degree part of the sky. It's a very wide-angle section of the sky and the camera has uh, six light filters which spans from the ultraviolet to the near infrared so you really when when you're looking with sky mapper you're just getting big wide chunk of the sky in great big detail i think one exposure with this kind of technology is it includes about a half a terabyte of information you can imagine over, over the night how much is collected by sky mapper they say the stars and galaxies and asteroids observed in the SkyMapper survey is expected to be in the order of a billion. And it's all stored in the ANU supercomputer. So it would be an archive of information for everyone to delve into, maybe endlessly. <laughs> so it's important. It's probably one of the most important telescopes in the world in that way. Covering the Southern Hemisphere, it's mapping. It also does roving surveys of type 1a supernovas which as we all know are the standard candles of the universe so i happen to be quite partial to the type 1a supernova when i first learned about it it's a star that basically pops it goes supernova when it's had a certain amount of mass when it reaches a certain capacity and so it it pops at a known luminosity we can measure it. And so uh, with spectroscopy, you can tell it's a type 1A. Um, when you know it's a type 1A supernova then and it's very dim, then you can actually calculate how far away it is and measure the universe with these exploding stars, which I think is pretty cool. It's very cool indeed. Now, a lot of the research is now done off-site with astronomers, both professional and amateur increasingly controlling their telescopes over the internet. And I was really impressed with the outwardly unassuming large tin shed up on the mountain that had a roll-off roof, which houses the iTelescope fleet. 
Can you tell us a bit about this facility, please? Is an eye telescope wonderful? A lot of people asked me, what's the big tin shed for? And I said, oh, <laughs> that's the biggest roll-off rooftop observatory in the Southern Hemisphere. And they say, pray tell. Yep. So eye telescopes are wonder, and it, it was unprecedented in that it's provided access to the night sky for anybody. So the, the sort of amateur astronomical enthusiasts, and I'm not saying amateur because they're no good at it. It's quite the opposite. They're just not a... a paid professional astronomer. So iTelescope has here at Siding Spring around 22 telescopes inside that shed. And you can schedule time to use these telescopes. They're incredibly professional. They are world-class instruments, maybe to the cost of something you may not be able to afford to put in your backyard yourself, but, yep. you, but you would like to subscribe. You know, when you have the time and you'd like to use top-class equipment, then you use our telescope telescopes. Um, they have all different ranges and sizes to use. So it's been so popular that our telescope now have some 42,000 subscribers using these telescopes here at Siding Spring. Wow. And our telescope has a similar setup in New Mexico as well. So you can actually use their telescopes 24 7, day and night, if you will. You can just keep scheduling what it is you'd like to image or look at in their scheduler. Fantastic. We're seeing a, a lot more citizen scientists getting in there and doing research that's being recognised as a contribution to science. Now, I know you're not supposed to have favourites, so can you tell us about something you particularly like up on the mountain that visitors could look out for, Amanda? It is hard not to have a favourite. Look, I've got two answers to this question because one might surprise you, and that is my favourite aspect of Siding Spring Observatory is the is actually the natural landscape, the wedge-tailed eagles flying around, the kangaroos jumping around <laughs> on site. And it's not lost on the astronomers either, especially the ones that have come from the Northern Hemisphere. It's a delightful slice of the Australian bush right here. A lot of professional world-class astronomical research facilities are in a desert. And Siding Spring is just surrounded by a nature park. And so if you're standing at the highest point on the mountain, which is a trig station, and you've just got a 360-degree view of the region and the world and the earth, I should say, just looks massive from up there, you, you have an aha moment, most people do. It, it's a very special perspective on not only our Earth and, and this part of, you know, the Central Western Ranges, but you as a human being. You know, everybody in, in, in the tours that I take up there it is they have that moment. They think, wow, because you've just filled their head up with astronomy as well, the big <laughs> picture stuff. And then they're standing on top of the mountain and can just see no evidence of human occupation for as far as the eye can see, except, of course, for these odd white buildings that are the observatories, you know, geared up to observe the universe at night. It really is a special place where people just have a moment. And I think it's, it's, it's not lost on anyone who's gone up there. And so I highly recommend if you get the chance to stand on that mountaintop and see what you feel for yourself. But 
Another answer to that question is because, of course, I would have my favourite telescope up here, and it would have to be the ANU 2.3 metre advanced technology telescope, or more affectionately referred to as the CUBE, because it's a big square observatory and it's kind of the kid doing his own thing. You know, all the other observatories are round, but there's this big cube and everybody says, well, what's that? And I explain that the Advanced Technology Telescope actually revolutionised the design of telescopes. It was the first of its kind in an alt-azimuth structure and just all the biggest telescopes now are designed to the design of this 2.3 metre. And it's, it's a neat observatory. So I think um, you stand outside the observatory, the last thing you expect is the whole building rotates uh, that's how it tracks the stars in a circular motion. That's the azimuth. And it, it's, everybody loves having a hayride on the 2.3. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, look, I, it's become my favourite. You're not supposed to have favourites. Maybe I'll have a new favourite next week. <laughs> Fantastic. I'll have to make sure I, I get to the cube next time. And I yes. did have one of those moments. I think my favourite memory from my visit to your mountain was to stand on the parapet of the AAT and look out at the landscape there. It's just astonishing. It is a view and you can't forget it. It's one of those make a memory views. So, I'm, oh yeah, I remember us up there too when <laughs> I took you there. It's great. Thanks, Amanda. You're so fortunate. For visitors who come to Siding Spring, what is the most common question you get asked by your tour participants? Oh, Brendan, you can imagine the range of questions that I might get asked. But the most common question, and there's always a few in each group, would be, is there life out there? Ah. I have my own personal opinion, which is, of course there is. Do the numbers. Yep. <laughs> but that's just my opinion. Scientifically, though, not yet. We are it. And it's, it's quite an astonishing thing if you really dig down into that question. Well, why? Where is everybody? Where is everybody? Because, you know, the galaxy is 100,000 light years wide. It's, it's been around for at least 10 billion years. You would imagine that another civilization would have been created in time to harness their, their planet and make fuel to, and rockets and, and be spacefaring. Well, we would actually see evidence of that. We would with our spectroscopes and, and all the technology that we have. We would be able to see the, the signature fingerprint of that technology, but it's not there. It's actually quite natural. It's sort of eerily, quietly, just just stars and stardust and hydrogen gas. It's, it's a, so the question begs, you know, well, where is everybody? And and people love this. They love the thought of interplanetary travel and you know we're going to Mars. Well, is it a one way trip? It's just we we love that. We love that that, you know, our technology will, will take us there or, or how far will our technology take us? And oh, there's a myriad ways you could have a conversation just leading from that one question, is there life out there? Fantastic, Amanda. The sense of wonder 
and excitement in your voice is just fantastic. Now, the microphone is all yours, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in the arts or the sciences or science denialism or career paths or our quest for new knowledge or even science tourism. The microphone is all yours, Amanda. Well, look, it's Brendan, it's, it's been quite a journey as the city girl who probably saw 25 stars in her life before she was 25 and then moved out to Central Australia and saw the Milky Way for the first time and actually would be akin, that experience would be akin to something spiritual at the time and, and astronomy got in deep. Yep. Um, so, look, during the last 20 years, just seeking out dark skies and working in a place like Siding Spring Observatory and in my day-to-day just, you know, rubbing shoulders with astrophysicists and Nobel laureates, so I've had some pretty great illuminating moments but look one really really stands out and it's my favorite at the moment I'm sharing with everybody and it's a bit of a mind shift a bit philosophical and it starts conversations with people but someone said to me once if you're out under the night sky and someone's with you just turn around and observe them observe that person observing the night sky I mean it's a miracle we exist at all and that we have the ability to, to ponder and wonder up at the night sky, you know, what is that? How is that so? Why are we here? But the biggest miracle of all perhaps is that as we are evolved from the universe, within the universe, is it perhaps that our purpose here on earth is to be the universe made manifest to observe itself. Wow. And the universe is looking right back at us. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that, that just blew my mind when somebody said that. It just made the big picture even bigger. And I really love that. And, look, I have these conversations all the time. It's the best part of this job is just to be a human being with someone and, and talk philosophically and scientifically. And look, at the end of the day, the message is to just be. Isn't it extraordinary that we just we just are having this human experience and to not let the little stuff mess you around. Find the beauty and the joy in things and each other. And that's my message for today. <laughs> Uh, that is beautiful. Thank you very much, Amanda. Now, is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? I'm very intrigued about this planet that was very close to us, 110 light years away with detectable water vapour in the atmosphere. It's as extraordinary. Yep. By no means a planet B, but... This would be a planet to keep our eye on because if it is water vapour in the atmosphere, there's a high likelihood of life existing there. Until we prove that life exists anywhere, this is the biggest thing we're on the brink of right now, perhaps finding life somewhere else in the universe. So, yeah, keep your eye on that story. Very good. That is the big question. Are we alone now? 
Thank you so much, Amanda Werrett. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. I've just loved your description and your experience on the mountain and will encourage everyone to go there. Thanks, Amanda. My pleasure, Brendan. Thank you. It's been really lovely speaking to you today. It was great to meet you and your wife, and uh, I look forward to seeing you again here sometime. Uh, We'll be back. See you, Amanda. Bye now. Okay. Bye. Okay, so let's cross over to Adelaide now for observing tips and astrophotography with our regular feature from Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrove. Hello, Brendan. Hello, Ian. Great to be speaking with you again. Now, did you get any rain? Yes, we did. We managed to get rain in such a way as to destroy my chances of observing the close apposition of uh, uh, Saturn and the crescent moon and also to uh, stop me seeing the uh, close apposition of Saturn and Jupiter. <laughs> yes, well, you win some and you lose some, Ian. With astronomy, you have to be very, very patient and put up with all sorts of setbacks. Yeah, too true. So, Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky for the next two weeks? I can indeed, and there's lots of interesting things coming up in the sky in the next two weeks. This fortnight won't be quite as exciting as the previous fortnight, but there's still quite a few things going on. If we turn to the western horizon uh, after sunset, our friend Mercury, which has been our constant companion or inconstant companion for the past few weeks, is now lost in the twilight and will reappear in the morning skies at the end of November. That won't be the last we see of Mercury. On November the 12th, there will be a transit of Mercury, unlike the more famous, very rare transit of Venus. Uh, Mercury transits occur more frequently. Unfortunately, this uh, transit will not be visible from Australia. We've seen quite uh, a few in the past decades, but uh, we won't be able to see this one. Our cousins in New Zealand will be able to see it. So if you're planning a trip to New Zealand, uh, I'll hop over so that you can have a look on the 12th and be able to catch the transit as the sun is setting. Although Mercury has gone, Venus is still going strong, moving up uh, through Scorpio heading towards Jupiter. Uh, the pair won't meet in this fortnight, but uh, you'll be able to watch them over the coming days, coming closer and closer. By the time this recording goes out, Venus will be very close to the relatively bright globular cluster M80. And now I say relatively bright, it's easily visible in binoculars, but you won't be able to see it with the unaided eye. But it should be dark enough to be able to, to just catch M80 in binoculars. As the week goes on, you'll be able to catch Venus coming closer and closer to Jupiter. That will make for a very nice view in yours to be able to catch uh, a Venus star. It doesn't really come close to Antares, but as it passes the, uh, the body of Scorpius and Scorpion, the sight of the bright Venus moving past the stars of the Scorpion, including Antares, is, uh, is going to be quite a, a good sight. Jupiter itself still nice to observe. You only have a very narrow window of observation before it becomes too close to the horizon to observe. But nonetheless, for about an hour or so after all darkness, which is about an hour and a half after sunset, you've got a chance to observe uh, the banding world and its moon shuttling about. 
There'll be some very nice Jupiter Moon events over the coming fortnight. Very good. Saturn is still high up above the horizon, setting sufficiently late that we'll be able to get these views of the planet in the telescope. It's looking very nice at the moment. And, uh, of course, as the uh, weeks go on, uh, uh, in that window you have for observing Saturn becomes narrower and narrower as the planet sinks towards the horizon. But for the moment, we've got a, a window of several hours where we'll be able to have uh, very good views of Saturn and even a small telescope. The other thing that is happening is the opposition of Vesta. Uh, Vesta is the, the second largest asteroid in the solar system. It, like Ceres, was visited by the Dawn spacecraft. And it's all but every cell from them close enough to Earth that we can see it with the unaided eye. Sadly, tragically, this year it's not, it's not going to be bright enough to see with the unaided eye, but at the moment it's really easy to see it with binoculars. The brightest it gets is about magnitude 6.5, which is just below the unaided eye threshold. Yep. But unfortunately, this is at the same time as full moon, and the full moon will be almost on top of. Vesta. So uh, on the night of opposition, when Vesta is at its brightest, it will be very difficult to see because of the light of the full moon. However, to balance this out, uh, Vesta will be relatively bright for some time before and some time after the full moon. And Vesta is also very close to some very bright guide stars. It's close to the stars that make the four-legged ports the bull. Omicron and Chai Tauri. So if you look at the V-shape that is, or V-shape that is the head of Taurus bull, and you look upwards and then slightly to the side, you'll see a, a, a pair of brightish stars that's, uh, they're very obvious, and that's uh, Chai and Omicron Tauri. If you train your binoculars there, Vesta is about the third brightest object you see next to that, that pair. You may have to wait over several nights to watch Vesta move to make sure you get quite Vesta, but it should be fairly easy to see. Very good. Yeah. The other thing that's happening is the Leonid meteor shower is occurring on the 14th of November. This is a regular occurrence, the debris from Comet 55 Tuttle, and you get uh, regular displays with uh, the uh, massive dust left behind by the comet uh, intersects with Earth's orbit. Unfortunately, this is not going to be one of those years. We have to wait for something like 2033 before we get this display again. So there's only going to be a, uh, a few uh, meteorites, something like 15 per hour. And to make it even worse, the waning moon is going to be quite close to the Leonid gradient, so it will wash out most of the meteor, so you won't expect to see very much. Right. If you want to get up and have a look anyway, find yourself a nice watching spot where you can walk out the moon with a uh, large object and settle down to watch. Uh, you won't see very many and a large chunk of the sky will be removed by uh, blocking out the moon. But you may see some and it's, it's a, the, the sky is particularly beautiful at that time of the morning so it won't be too bad. And Mars is lurking around on the horizon. So... It's deep within the, the twilight, so it'll be rather difficult to see. You may need binoculars. It's coming close to the bright, it's coming close to the bright star speaker. But 
you'll have to wait some time before you see the pair together right uh, up. So although Mars is present, you'll need to be scanning the, uh, the horizon about half an hour before sunrise to see it with any, uh, any degree of clarity. Yep. Okay, Ian, do you have a, a tangent for us for this episode? Yeah, so the tangent comes from the recent discovery of one of the uh, largest asteroids made back the dwarf planet, and this is uh, 10 Pygia. Now, you may recall that the definition of a dwarf planet is that the planet should be hydrostatic equilibrium, that is, it's basically round and uh, under self-gravity, but hasn't cleared out its local area. So Ceres is a dwarf planet. Pluto and Eris are dwarf planets, but Vesta misses out. It's because it's potato shaped. And this has started another bit of, bit of discussion. We know both Vesta and uh, Hygia have suffered very large impacts because both Vesta and Hygia have uh, large asteroid and uh, meteor families uh, that are associated with them. In fact, you may be interested to know that outside of the uh, of the meteorites coming from the which are part of the commentary stream, about something like uh, one in sixteen of the uh, of the meteorites that end up on Earth originated in Vesta. So the uh, the collision that made Vesta potato shape uh, caused some serious damage, and there's, uh, there's a huge amount of debris floating around uh, in the tail of Vesta. Cool. Something similar has happened to Hygia. Now, uh, again, it's got a large asteroid family. It doesn't have quite a, it's not a bigger uh, asteroid family as uh, Vesta. But Hygia is round, and Vesta is potato-shaped. So the, what they think happened is that uh, the impact that disrupted the uh, Hygia that produced the uh, Hygia asteroids completely disrupted it, and then it reformed pull itself into a circular shape uh, from, uh, from the rubble, which brings us back to the definition of the dwarf planet. This uh, is out on being a dwarf planet because it's had its south pole blasted away, and because it's rock, it's, uh, which is fairly inelastic, it hasn't relaxed into a, a round shape. But Hygia has been completely demolished and has reformed debris to a round shape. So is that kind of fair that Vesta doesn't get to be a small planet and because it has enough strength to uh, maintain itself for a large chunk of its big blast off, blast it off? And idea which was completely demolished and reformed into a more or less uh, spherical shape gets to be a small planet. And I can see that there will be a lot of arguing argy-bargy about this over the coming years as they try to decide... Uh, Oh, that's very good, Ian, because that might stop people from arguing about Pluto. <laughs> There's no hope of that. But interestingly, Hygiene is also coming to opposition at the moment in Taurus. So Vesta, as you know, is coming to opposition on the 12th of November in the falling uh, Taurus. But Hygiene is coming to opposition uh, between the Pleiades and the uh, the of of uh, the Taurus's head itself. Now, Hygia, even though it's the fourth largest 
asteroid is also one of the darkest. It's basically a carbonaceous conglomerate. And even though it comes relatively close, it's a large, it comes relatively close to Earth, it never gets brighter at about magnitude 9.5. At the moment, it's, uh, this opposition will only get up to magnitude 10.3. And that means that it's visible in most amateur scopes uh, and maybe of interest to people to live as close to the Pleiades, quite, uh, quite a beautiful little cluster, to uh, track it over the coming uh, weeks. Again, it, it's not going to get very bright, but uh, magnitude 10 is incredibly dim, even by uh, modern amateur stand, standards. But it may be well, well worthwhile probably get some, possibly capture, capturing long, uh, long exposure images with the edges of Pleiades or, uh, or uh, some nice uh, little compositions. Uh, interestingly, there's another, uh, there's, there's three asteroids that are coming to opposition in Taurus around about the time of Hygia and Vesta. Uh, and they are not a 409 Aspasia and 88 Tisby. And now Tisby uh, gets up to, uh, to magnitude 10.9 and Aspasia only gets up to magnitude 11.1. So if you're feeling like being a serious asteroid hunter, you've got um, uh, three uh, uh, asteroids coming to uh, opposition, all in Taurus, all within uh, a day or so of each other, all within uh, the range of amateur telescopes uh, of at least a uh, four-inch uh, reflector diameter. Uh, they'll require a bit of effort to find, but it's a good challenge, whereas there's no challenge if just whatsoever ending up with a uh, pair of binoculars and a good idea of where the falling of towards the location will be up right best, and perhaps even take some nice images of the Vesta in the process. Very good. And do you plan on putting some star charts on your Astro Blogger website? I've already put up the star charts for Vesta. But yeah, well, why not? Yeah, I'll put up some star charts for Hygia. Very good. And thank you very much. We'll remind people to go and check out Ian's Astro Blog website. You just have to put Astro Blogger into your favourite search engine, and Ian comes up as number one. And while we're planning for the future, Ian, we've got some, we have three episodes coming up before we take our summer holidays. Here in Australia, we love holidays, so we're taking a break over the festive season. And after that, we'll soon be planning for our 100th episode. So there's lots happening between now and the end of the year and some exciting times for us all at the beginning of next year. I'm looking forward to it. I'm especially looking forward to episode 100. We should be able to pull out some special things for that. <laughs> very good, Ian. Well, thank you very much, Ian, Astroblog Musgrave. Once again, it's fantastic speaking with you. Thanks, Ian, for What's Up, Doc. And thank you very much, Brendan, for the opportunity to share these guys uh, with so many people. It's been a pleasure to be speaking with you. And uh, let's hope that uh, the skies are clear enough when it needs to be and rainy enough when it needs to be. Excellent. Good night, Ian. Good night, Brendan. And here is your Astrophys News Roundup for episode 94. As you know, we've been following the FRB story very closely over the last couple of years. 
and there's a paper up on the archives server by Dr. A.G. Siveroff from the University of Tübingen in Germany. Here's the abstract. Fast radio bursts are millisecond duration radio pulses of extragalactic origin. A recent statistical analysis has found that the burst energetics of the repeating source, FRB 121102, follow a power law with an exponent that is curiously consistent with the Gutenberg-Richter law for earthquakes. This hints that repeating FRBs may be compact objects undergoing violent tectonic activity. For young magnetars possessing magnetic fields which are both strong and highly multipolar, there are zones of magnetic stress throughout the outer layers of the star, potentially strong enough to facilitate frequent crustal failures. In this paper, assuming a quake scenario, we show how small, localised cracks can occur sporadically throughout the crust. Each of these shallow fractures may release bursts of energy consistent in magnitude with those seen in the repeating sources FRB 121102 and FRB 1808-14. So there you have it. More hints about the mechanism for repeating FRBs. Perhaps this magnetar seismic mechanism could also apply to one-off FRBs. And then there's the possibility that all FRBs are repeaters, but on longer timescales. No definitive answers yet, but definitely edging closer. Watch this space. Our final story is gathered from a number of news feeds, Twitter, and specifically from Hannah Devlin's story in The Guardian. NASA's Voyager 2 sends back its first message from interstellar space. Voyager 2 is the second spacecraft to travel beyond the heliosphere and gives us more detailed data about that environment. Given Voyager 2's location in space, only large antennas in the southern hemisphere can communicate with Voyager 2. Specifically, the NASA CSIRO Deep Space Communication Complex at Tidbinbilla and the 70-metre Parks Radio Observatory. 12 billion miles from Earth, there's an elusive boundary called the heliosphere, a bubble of supersonic charged particles streaming outwards from the sun. It marks the edge of the sun's realm and the start of interstellar space, and Voyager 2 just crossed into that nebulous frontier. Despite setting off a month ahead of its twin, Voyager 1, Voyager 2 crossed the threshold into interstellar space more than six years behind because it took the more scenic route across the solar system and providing what remained the only close-up images of Uranus and Neptune. Now, Voyager 2 has sent back the most detailed look at that edge of our solar system, despite NASA scientists having no idea at the outset that it would survive to see this great landmark. We didn't know how large the bubble was, and we certainly didn't know that the spacecraft could live long enough to reach the edge of a bubble and enter interstellar space, said Professor Ed Stone 
of the California Institute of Technology, who's been working on the mission since before its launch in 1977. The heliosphere can be thought of as a cosmic weather front, a distinct boundary where charged particles rushing outward from the sun at supersonic speed meet a cooler interstellar wind blowing in from supernova that exploded millions of years ago. It was once thought that the solar wind faded away gradually with distance, but Voyager 1 confirmed there was a boundary, defined by a sudden drop in temperature and an increase in the density of charged particles known as plasma. Measurements, published in five separate papers in Nature Astronomy, revealed that Voyager 2 encountered a much sharper, thinner heliosphere boundary than Voyager 1, and this could be due to Voyager 1 crossing during a solar maximum. Activity is currently at a low. Or the craft itself might have crossed through on a less perpendicular trajectory, which meant it ended up spending longer at the edge. The second data point also gives some insight into the shape of the heliosphere, tracing out a leading edge, something like a blunt bullet. It implies that the heliosphere is symmetric, at least at the two points where the Voyager spacecraft crossed, said Bill Kurth, a University of Iowa research scientist and co-author on one of the studies. That says that these two points on the surface are almost at the same distance. From beyond the heliosphere, the signal from Voyager 2 is still beaming back, taking more than 16 hours to reach Earth. Its 22.4 watt transmitter has a power equivalent to a fridge light, which is more than a billion billion times dimmer by the time it reaches Earth and it is picked up by these two 70-metre dishes in the Southern Hemisphere. The two Voyager probes, powered by steadily decaying plutonium, are projected to drop below critical energy levels in the mid-2020s and fall silent. But they will continue on their trajectories long after they fall silent. The two Voyagers will outlast Earth, said Kurth. They're in their own orbits around the galaxy for five billion years or longer, and the probability of them running into anything is almost zero. A final, final word. If anyone has the answer to the current debate about the Hubble constant, please let me know. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio 1